I'm Ultimator and I'm one of the elders um, of this church. Uh, before we get started, let's make sure that everybody has a Bible. Uh, if you don't have one, please raise your hand and the guys in the back will bring you one. Most of you are aware that Pastor Steve and his family are taking a long overdue break, and uh, they are in Italy right now. And Pastor Steve was actually preaching this morning uh, in one of the local Calvary Chapel churches. But uh, I would suggest don't give up hope yet. I understand that the Pope isn't ready to retire yet, so he, uh, he should be back here in a, in a couple of weeks. Let us pray then. O oh God and Father, thank you that you brought us here this morning. Yes, Lord, thank you that you promised that where two or three gather in your name, you will be in their midst. So, Lord, we know that you're here with us right now, and Father, we pray that you would pour out your spirit, your blessings on us. Yes, open our hearts that we may hear what you have to say to each one of us personally. And God, may, may you and you alone be glorified in all that's being said and done. Oh, Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. Well, over the past few months, uh, Pastor Steve covered with us the gospel of the Apostle John, who was one of the disciples of Jesus, as most of us know. Now, in Luke, in chapter 5, gives us some insight into John's early life, and we'll just go over this uh, briefly. Uh, we read that John, his brother, James and Simon Peter uh, were partners in a fishing business. And at one time, they had worked all night and caught absolutely nothing. Now, as they were cleaning their nets, here comes Jesus, who grew up, grew up in nearby Nazareth, and asks Peter to take him out in one of their two boats so he could preach to the multitude that followed him. And as Jesus was uh, done preaching, he told Peter to go back out and give it another try. Well, it sure didn't make much sense to these professional uh, fishermen, but they followed this, uh, the advice of this uh, rabbi or whoever he was, in their opinion. And then, guess what? Suddenly, the net was full to the point that it was breaking. So the second boat uh, came out, and we read that both boats were filled with fish to the point that they began to sink. And then Jesus told the three guys to leave their fishing business and to follow him. And guess what? They walked away from what was so dear to them to do what? 
they didn't have a clue, did they? And over the next three plus years, they saw miracle after miracle performed by Jesus, including sick people being healed, dead people being uh, brought back to life. And they heard the teaching, teachings of Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah. Now, later on, they witnessed Jesus being persecuted, his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection, and ultimately his ascension to heaven. And then John, the ex-fisherman, became one of the leaders of the early church, which at that point already uh, consisted of several thousand believers. And during his lifetime, John witnessed many, many more people uh, becoming believers. But he also witnessed the persecution of the believers. He witnessed the killing of his brother James by King Herod and the execution of all his fellow apostles and ultimately the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. And John himself was condemned, but rather than being executed, he was sort of dumped into boiling oil and eventually banished to Patmos, a small island um, in the Mediterranean Sea. So given all this, what John had gone through, did he lose his faith in Jesus, in God? No, to the contrary. Indeed, maybe some 60 years after Jesus uh, ascended to heaven, John, who may now have been in his 90s, wrote a letter, and the letter was not addressed to a specific church like many of the other New Testament letters, but to believers at large. And this, uh, his key message was, love God and love your fellow believers. So this morning, let's look at some of the highlights in the first John chapter 1, and then we uh, may go into chapter 2. First well, John chapter 1, and again, let's remember that this letter isn't addressed to one of you know, the churches that existed at that point, but it's addressed to all believers including to you and me this morning. So let's see what God has to say to us. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we read, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. We declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. Why? That you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 4, and these things we write to you. Why? That your joy may be full. So, who is talk, 
uh, John talking about in these verses? In other words, who was from the beginning? And who is the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested? Yes, it was Jesus Christ, wasn't it? And why did John write the letter? Look at verse 3. That you also may have fellowship with us. And in verse 4, that your joy may be full. And another question, why was fellowship so important to John? Clearly, it was because his fellowship was with God the Father and with Jesus Christ, as we just read in verse 3. Now, what does fellowship imply? Fellowship really is much more than a casual friendship, isn't it? Rather, it means a very close personal relationship. It means family. Webster says, a member of a group having common characteristics, interest, activity, feeling, experience. Yes, members of a family, of a body of believers with Jesus Christ, the head of the body, and the Spirit of God directing the body. And quite frankly, I was very challenged as I uh, reflected on this statement by God. Indeed, what can I say about my relationship with God the Father, with Jesus Christ? Or what is my daily relationship with God like? You know, is it something like, shoot, the day is almost over and I still haven't said my prayer? Or I still have to read the Bible? Or today is Sunday, so we have to go back to church. Or we have to go to Bible study or uh, prayer meetings or whatever else it may be because the pastor or people expect us to be there. For the ones who are married, how would our spouse feel if all we did were simply guilt-based? You know, we do it because we feel we have to rather than because we love each other, because we enjoy a very close relationship. Or maybe our relationship with God is need-based. You know, and it only truly works when there are health issues or financial issues or something else, like, yeah, we need a job or whatever else it may be. Yes, can I, can we all truly say, just as John said, that we have this very special relationship that can truly be referred to as fellowship, that our fellowship is with God the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And this fellowship is the reason for what we read in verse 4, namely, and these things I write to you, why? So that your joy may be full. And clearly, we're not talking about a superficial happiness that's here one day and gone the next, are we? I'm so happy today. It's not what it's all about. No, we're talking about a deep joy in our hearts, a joy that's combined 
with the peace of God because of this fellowship that we have with God the Father and with Jesus Christ. Now, think about it. What are some of these very special characteristics of this fellowship that all true believers have with God? The Bible tells us that if we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we belong to God. We are his children, members of his family. We are heirs of God, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. We have received his spirit. We are holy in God's eyes because Jesus died for our sins. And not only are our sins forgiven, but we have been set free from Satan's power. We don't have to sin anymore. And we are shielded by God's power. And yes, we are looking forward to the day when we will be with Jesus, with God forever and ever. And on and on it goes. Now, if I have that kind of relationship with God that John had, if I'm a child of God, as we will see, and you have this same kind of relationship with God, what's the logical consequence? It obviously is that you and I have a close relationship, a family relationship with each other too, isn't it? Indeed, as we will see, we cannot claim that we have that kind of relationship with God, that we are filled with his spirit, yet then not reflect God's love to other believers, starting with the ones closest to us, such as, for example, our spouse. As we read on, we will hear much more about this relationship. But let's uh, look at verses 5 through 7. This is the message which we have heard from him and declared to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then what? We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Look, verse 5 makes a very important statement, namely, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. As we go on, we'll read this over and over again. What is the consequence of God being light? It obviously is that we who believe in God, who are his children, we walk in the light. And if we walk in the light, there is no hiding part of our uh, life from God, or is there? Indeed, we just read in verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So, what is the logical result of having fellowship with God, of being a child of God? Look at verse 7 again. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us 
from all sin. I really hope that everyone in this room who doesn't know this verse yet will memorize it. Yes, God is light, we read. So back to the question, if you and I walk in the light of God, if we have fellowship with him, what is the inevitable consequence? Yes, you and I have fellowship with each other, isn't it? It's like a triangle. You relate to God, I relate to God, so we relate with each other. And what is the result of the fellowship with God and with each other? Verse 7, the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood that Jesus shed on the cross, cleanses us from all sin. Let me ask you, how much sin is there left in you and me if the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin? Obviously none. Indeed, uh, God sees you and me in Christ Jesus as if we had never had nor committed a single sin. We are holy and blameless and above uh, reproach in his sight, we read in Colossians 1.22. Now, you may say, but then what about verses 8 and 10? Uh, That is, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Well, we see in verse 9 that there is a basic requirement to receiving forgiveness of sin. Namely, we have first to acknowledge our sinfulness, which is both inherited and self-made. Yes, to be forgiven of our sins, to become a child of God, we have first to acknowledge that we are sinners. Indeed, verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, then what? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No, John doesn't say that after having accepted Jesus and being baptized, we will never commit the single sin again. That we have to live a perfect life in order to make it to heaven. Indeed, our salvation is not based on a perfect lifestyle but rather on God's mercy and grace, on his forgiveness, on Jesus' death in our place for our sins, and on his resurrection. Does this mean that once we have accepted Jesus Christ in our life, we now can go back to our old lifestyle and just live the kind of life we want? No way. Indeed, let's move on to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Why is John writing about all this? He says, These things I write to you so that you may not sin. But John doesn't end there, does he? And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation, that is the only offering that satisfies God. Yes, he himself is Another translation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. As we will see shortly, as children of God, as believers in Christ who died with him to sin and were resurrected with him to a new life, we no longer have to sin. For we read in John 8.36 that Jesus himself says, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Yes, we may still fail, and Satan, the accuser of the brethren, who accuses them before our God day and night, we read in Revelations 12.10, will be quick to accuse us before God. God, see, I told you that he or she is no good. That they'll never be faithful, that they'll fall back into their old habits. And not only that, but all, Satan will also use our messing up to discourage us, to try to convince us that we'll never make it. But look at the good news that we just read. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. No, it's not our good lifestyle, is it, that saves us. Rather, it is Jesus' death that he died on our behalf, paying the debt that we incurred, and his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to heaven, where he now acts as our advocate. Let me read a passage from John Corson's commentary relating to verses 1 and 2 that Anita just gave me a few days ago. While driving 80 miles an hour through downtown Medford, Oregon, I'm pulled over by an officer of the law and taken into a courtroom. But although I walk in with knees knocking and forehead perspiring, I'm greatly relieved to discover that the presiding church is my dad. That is why there is a smile on my face and even after the evidence against me is presented. After all, the church is my dad and he knows boys will be boys. Imagine my surprise then when I hear his voice thunder, guilty. The fine is $5,000 or five years in jail. How can this be, I cry. You're my dad. Sir, he answers, in this courtroom, I'm your judge. And justice must be done. So I open my wallet to pay the fine, but all I find is a crumbled dollar bill and some change. And just as the bailiff is about to slap cuffs on my wrists and hold me to jail, the church stands up, deliberately takes off his robe and leaves the bench to stand beside me and to pay my fine. Thus justice is served because the price for the sin of speeding was paid, not by me, 
but by my father who paid a debt I was completely unable to pay. And that's exactly what happened when Jesus Christ became the propitiation, the payment for my sin. And really, it goes back to John 3.16, doesn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Look, no matter how bad our life may have been, God is willing to forgive. Indeed, from his end, there is nothing that needs to be added for you and me to spend eternity with him. The question is, will we accept his offer? As we have seen, the the main emphasis in the first part of John's letter was about the communion we enjoy with God. Now, the following passage, verses 3 through 11, focuses on everyday life, on our obedience to God's commandments. So let's look at verse 3. Now, by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Now, we may say, you know, I'm living a good life. I've been baptized. I go to church. I recite my prayer every day. So God has to be satisfied. Is that what we just read? How do we know whether a person truly knows God? And I'm not saying knows about God, but rather knows God personally. Now, by this we know that we know him if we, need, if we keep his commandments, we just read. And look at verse 4. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, well, too often the excuse for not keeping God's commandments is simply, oh, we're all sinners. Don't believe it. It's a lie. Indeed, nowhere in the New Testament will you find support for this statement. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, then you died with him to sin, and you have been resurrected with him to a new life. In other words, you were born again. You were given a new nature. Listen just to some of the passages in in Romans 6, verses 1 and 2. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live uh, any longer in it? Uh, Verse 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Verse 8, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Verse 11, Count yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And verse 14, for sin shall not have 
dominion over you. And on and on it goes. Yes, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. We read in Galatians 2.20. And that's why in the New Testament, believers are referred to as saints over 60 times, but not a single time as sinners. And in the next chapter, in 1 John 3, 1, we read, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called, what, sinners? No, rather, that we should be called children of God. And Hebrews 10, 10 states, By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We have been we read, not we will eventually be by living a good life. So if you fail, don't beg and beg God for forgiveness, as I did for years. Rather, confess your sins and thank God that you are forgiven. By his will, you have been sanctified through the offering of Jesus Christ once for all. Because you know what? Jesus isn't going to come back a second time to die again for the sins that we committed after we accepted him as Lord and Savior, is he? Indeed, Hebrews 10.14 says, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Is this good enough for us? Or do we rather listen to Satan who tries to discourage us, to accuse us, and to get us back under his control? Verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. The love of God is perfected in you and me. That sure isn't something we do, is it? Not in our own strength. Rather, it is God at work in our lives. By this, we know that we are in him. Let me ask you, would a holy God allow sin or sinful people to be in him? Obviously, the answer is no, because God can have no communion, no relationship with sin. But we are in him because we were sanctified by the blood of Jesus. So, what is the result of the love of God being perfected in you and me? Look at verse 6. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Is this referring to us doing the kind of miracles that Jesus performed, that is, that we are expected to change water into wine and heal the sick and raise the dead? Let's look at some of the characteristics of the life of Jesus. For starters, John 5, 19 
Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. And John 5.30, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear in church, and my churchman is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. So, do you and I care what God's will is for our life? Or is it all about me, myself, and I? Well, we may say, but I'm not Jesus. I mean, Jesus was sent to this earth with a very specific mission, wasn't he? Namely, to show us who God the Father is and to die for our sins. Well, I'm just one of billions of people who happen to be on this earth. Is that what the Word of God teaches us? If that is how you think, if you see no eternal purpose or meaning in your life, please write down Ephesians 2.10. And if you haven't memorized it yet, please memorize it. It says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Yes, God had a very specific reason for sending Jesus to this, this earth. But he also had a very specific reason why he created you and me. And he didn't just use a standard template to create you and me. Rather, in Second Peter 1.3, we read that his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Thus, there goes any excuse for not serving God. So, do you and I care what God's will is for our life? And do I do what I do for the Lord? Or is it to impress people. In Matthew 6, 1 and 2, we read, uh, Jesus said, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. If God has called you to do a certain work, a certain job, make sure you never, never do it for people, and never do it for the church. Rather, do it for the Lord. Be accountable to him for people. And yes, even the church will sooner or later disappoint you. They won't appreciate or recognize what you are doing as you may expect them to do. But God will never, never disappoint us. And on top of that, if you do what you do for him, you'll not just end up with an occasional compliment or pat on your shoulders, but rather with an eternal reward, as we just read. Now, what is 
the key requirement to accomplish our personal mission. We find the answer in John 15, 5, 5, namely Jesus telling us, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do how much? Nothing. You want to try it in your own strength or figure it out by yourself, and I'm sure we all tried, and we all failed miserably. Does that mean that that's impossible? If it were, why would Jesus himself have said it? And why would John write it? We'll get back to this question shortly, but verses 7 and 8. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you which thing is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Is John starting to feel his age here and getting a bit confused when he says, I write no new commandment, but an old commandment, yet a new commandment I write to you? Or, or is he perhaps saying that we should simply forget about the Old Testament, that whatever happened over the first 4,000 years really doesn't matter anymore, and the Ten Commandments that God has given no longer apply, in other words, that we now can live whichever way we want. No, this is clearly not what he is saying, as we have already seen. Indeed, Jesus himself talks about this new commandment as we read in John 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this All will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And Romans 13.8, Paul helps us better understand what this meant by this new commandment. Namely, he writes, He who loves another has fulfilled the law. Indeed, if we love God and love each other as Jesus has loved us, We won't do any harm to each other, will we? Rather, the Old Testament law, all the commandments that were given by God, will be fulfilled. Indeed, think of it. If the love for God and for people had been the norm from the very beginning, God would never have had to give the Ten Commandments in the first place, would he? Yes, Jesus meant every word when he said what we just read in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. How did he love us? He laid down his life for us. And that's why we read in verses uh, 9 through 11 of the chapter before us, that he who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother 
abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Ladies, aren't you glad that all this speaks about brothers? Well, we all know that the term brother means everyone equally. Brothers and sisters, no different whatsoever. So if I claim claim that I'm in the light, in other words, that Jesus lives in me, that I have the Holy Spirit of God in me, there is no way that I can hate another child of God, be that the brother or sister in Christ. No matter what wrong they may, may have done, if they confessed it, they are forgiven by God. They are holy and blameless before God. They are in the light. So if I hate them, if I refuse to forgive them for the wrong they may have done, Jesus cannot live in me. Yes, John thirteen thirty five. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What was the result of the love Jesus had for us? Rather than wiping us out because of our sins, because of all the wrong that we did, he was willing to die in our place for us, as we've seen earlier. Do people know and see in our life that we are his children? And no, not, not by the church that we attend, but by the love we have for one another. Or do, what do others conclude when they see the relationship we have with other believers, maybe with our spouse or our family, with our neighbors? And look, I'm, I'm not just talking about with people who have sweet personalities. It may be the stubborn ones. It may be the ones who, by design and profession, have to be tough. It may be uh, type A ones, and on and on it goes. For Jesus didn't limit his commandment to loving one another to people with nice and sweet personalities, or did he? Indeed, there is no doubt in my mind that if that were the people God had been looking for, he would never have chosen me. Never. And God's love for me helps me understand what his love is like. Yes, his love is extended to the most undeserving, the most unfaithful, to the ones who have nothing to offer in return except a miserable and messed up life. Yes, thank you, Lord, for choosing me. Again, remember verse 7 of chapter 1, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. 
we have fellowship, we reach out to each other, we support each other, care for each other, regardless of personalities, regardless what injustice may have happened. And yes, regardless what church other believers may be members of. So back to verse 11 of chapter 2. But he who hates his brother or his sister is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because darkness has blinded his eyes. In other words, darkness or the kingdom of Satan is where hatred, unforgiveness, and judgmental attitudes are found. And darkness, Satan's power, dominates the mind of the unforgiving person. And Jesus will not share a room or a person with Satan. Indeed, either it is Jesus who lives in us, or it is Satan who lives in us. Either we, are, we live in the light of God with God's people, or we share Satan's darkness with his children. It's one or the other. God does not compromise. And notice, John doesn't say he who doesn't hate his brother abides in the light, but rather he who loves his brother. Indeed, uh, in chapter 3, verses 10 and 14, John emphasizes that he who does not love his brother is not of God. And he who does not love his brother abides in death. So there is no room for thoughts like, oh, I don't hate him or her, I just don't want any part of them. Doesn't work, does it? I know there are people among us this morning who may not love their brother or sister in Christ because they have been deeply hurt by them. And yes, that may include marriage relationships, family relationships, relationships with difficult neighbors, and on and on it goes. And this may include what others may have done to our family, our children, our spouse. How do we react when injustice comes our way? I'm right, they're wrong. Look, if you struggle with forgiveness, remember what it cost God, the Father, to reconcile you and me with himself. As I said earlier, Jesus Christ, his one and only beloved Son, had to leave God's presence in heaven and come to this earth to be mocked, beaten, spat at, crowned with thorns, crucified, and murdered. Why? Because of your sins and mine. And if God was willing to pay that price to put the punishment that we deserved on his beloved son so that he could forgive us our sins, and if Jesus was willing to lay down his life so we could be forgiven of our trespasses, 
set free from the power and consequence of sin, what price are you and I willing to pay to forgive people who may have hurt us? Yes, Jesus was willing to give his life for people who didn't care about him, their creator. So, what are you and I willing to give? Are we willing to give up? I'm right, they're wrong. Yes, are we willing to forgive and live as children of God in his light? Or do we rather hold on to our hurts, to unforgiveness, to being right, and end up in hell? Friends, there is no third option, is there? It's one or the other. Remember verse 7 again of chapter 1. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Well, the time is up. But I'd like to encourage you to read the entire letter this week, for there is so much more that simply we won't have time to cover this morning. So let us pray. Father God, you've again shown us this morning how much you love us. Thank you for having sent Jesus to the this earth for having offered us forgiveness, for having set us free from sin. Yes, thank you that we are shielded by your power, that no one can separate us from your love that is in Christ Jesus. Yes, we pray that you would continue to open our eyes for your will in our life and to help us to truly reach out to each other with the love that you have poured into our hearts. We praise you and thank you. Glory be to your name. Amen.